The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. This episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. There's never been a better time to get serious about that book idea that's been rattling around in your head. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, deadlines, and step-by-step guidance while you write so that you can actually finish your book. Your book coach will give you the customized tools and blueprints to success that are so often lacking in the traditional publishing world. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill sets needed to become great book coaches themselves. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can help other writers reach their goals. Just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles for more info and to get a free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. I mean, how terrible is it to say that a book about the early days of Nazi Germany feels really relevant to our times, but yeah. it totally does. It's the same way I felt about Strong Inside, which was a book about um, racism uh, in the 19. 19- 50s and 60s and it felt all too relevant when I was out talking about it um but you know I try not to be too obvious with connections uh between the 1930s and today and sort of leave that up to the reader but I think it's pretty easy to do (laughs) to read between the lines sure in my book when I'm talking about the dangers of nationalism or uh about propaganda or about leaders who have no uh, who who lie and are yet still powerful and uh, and influential and paint their opponents as un-American. Hey there, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your host, Kelton Reed. And in part two of this file, the award-winning New York Times bestselling narrative nonfiction author, Andrew Marinus, returned to chat about what it was like to grow up around so many famous journalists, why he chooses to weave social issues into sports history and some age-old wisdom on how to beat writer's block. Andrew's the son of Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post journalist and author David Marinus, so it's no surprise that he has writing in his blood and a touch of imposter syndrome. His winding path to bestseller started as a history writing assignment at Vanderbilt University and only years later became his award-winning book, Strong Inside, 
Perry Wallace and the Collision of Race and Sports in the South. The author's latest, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, is a young adult title that chronicles the remarkable true story of the birth of Olympic basketball. The book's been called an insightful, gripping account of basketball and bias, and investigative journalist and number one best-selling author Bob Woodward called it shocking and triumphant. In part two of this file, Andrew and I discussed why narrative nonfiction is so valuable in the fiction-heavy young adult genre. The importance of embedding relevant social issues into stories for younger audiences. Apocryphal wisdom on how to beat writer's block and build momentum. How being related to a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer might give you imposter syndrome. The viral nature of basketball's genesis and rise to international fame. And why the writing community and indie bookstores are more vital than ever for sharing important stories. And do me a huge favor. If you want to support the show, just pop over to survey.libsyn.com slash writerfiles and fill out that short seven-question survey, the easiest multiple choice you'll ever do, so we can learn a little bit more about you. That's survey.libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com slash writerfiles. It's simple, it helps a lot, and I thank you. If you missed the first half of this show, you can find it in the show notes, the archives at writerfiles.fm, and you can find the last 100 episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you pod. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published, and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. There was this um, pretty massive boycott movement in the United States leading up to the Olympics. There was a Gallup poll that showed uh, 40-something percent of Americans favored a boycott a couple of years before the Olympics, which is a sizable percentage considering a boycott had never been considered before. And yet you had athletes like Jesse Owens um, and a Jewish athlete on the basketball team that that wanted to go. And they felt like the best thing they could do to refute Hitler's uh, theories was to go to Berlin, perform well, win a gold medal. And yet I write in the book that even though both Jesse Owens and Sam Balter did that, I mean, what can you really claim that that, that did? I mean, there were still yeah. six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. You still had World War II. Jesse Owens comes back to the United States and is honored, and yet in segregated uh, situations where he has to take service elevators up to a banquet in his honor, you know, and can't find a job um, anywhere and has to race against horses at minor league baseball stadiums just to make a buck. Sam Balter loses his job at the Universal Pictures studio for taking so much time off of work to compete in the Olympics. <laughs> right. So, yeah, in some ways, uh, this is a triumphant moment, but in some ways, it, it didn't really add up to much. Yeah. Yeah. Again, uh, another another image that popped out at me was this one of American novelist Thomas Wolfe 
Thomas Wolf <laughs> jumping out of his ski- seat and <laughs> shouting for joy and Hitler uh this image of Hitler kind of leaning over and glaring at him um, <laughs> Yeah, a moment of levity yeah wolf was <laughs> cheering for jesse owens and i guess hitler was pissed off about this loud american in the booth next to him I love that. and scowls at him um also in the opening ceremonies there are some pigeons they weren't peace doves but they were german military carrier pigeons that were released from some boxes around the stadium and they're flying above the stadium and some cannons were fired and all the pigeons start pooping on top of all the athletes standing in the middle of the parade ground in the field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are a number of Americans that talked about these white splotches on their nice navy blue uh, sport coats that they were wearing for the opening ceremonies. <laughs> oh, great image. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I mean, I think one interesting question, I mean, before I ask you a little bit about kind of, again, the, the writing pedigree is just, um, I don't know. I mean, I think the value of, not only narrative nonfiction in, in, you know, kind of a fiction heavy young adult world. Right. Um, but also, you know, speak a little bit maybe to this time in history and why this, why this book and this subject is, um, I think very kind of relevant to write what's happening Mm -hmm. right now in this country. Right. Exactly. So the first part of your question, I agree. I mean, there's a ton of great, uh, fiction out there for young readers. There is some great nonfiction, but but not enough of it. You know, and when I was a kid, and still I read nonfiction, you know, and I want to try to write the types of books that I would have liked to have read when I was a kid. And I think there are some middle school, high school students who are labeled as reluctant readers or non-readers or feel like that they're not really readers. And maybe it's just because they haven't been exposed to the types of books that they're interested in. And so hopefully my books, which are um, sports-related nonfiction with a, with a serious message behind them, will be of interest to kids. And it really makes me happy when I'm at a school and someone will walk up and say, you know, I didn't think, I didn't really read books, but I like this one. You know, and then I feel like I've done my job. A lot of times my lines at these teen book festivals are a lot shorter than the fiction author's lines, mm-hmm. but I know that it, it's meaningful to the kids that the it resonates with. And so that that's where I get my satisfaction. Second part of your question. Yeah, I feel like this book, unfortunately, I mean, how terrible is it to say that a book about the early days of Nazi Germany feels really relevant to our times, but yeah. it totally does. It's the same way I felt about Strong Inside, which was a book about um, racism uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And it felt all too relevant when I was out talking about it. Um, but you know, I try not to be too obvious with connections, uh, between the 1930s and today and sort of leave that up to the reader. But I think it's pretty easy to do (laughs) to read between the lines in my book when I'm talking about the dangers of nationalism or, uh, about propaganda or about leaders who have no, uh, who, who lie and are yet still powerful and, uh, and influential and paint their opponents as un-American passages about the deportation of Mexican-Americans from Los Angeles where the Olympics were held in 1932 or the fact that Congress couldn't pass an anti-lynching legislation uh, leading up to the 36 Olympics. I think that this is in a very important, dangerous time in, in current events just as it was in the 1930s. And if my book can cause young people to see those connections and to... Um, 
be active in whatever way they're comfortable with, try to change things, that I would consider that a successful aspect of the book for sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and one thing I'll say is that I think that, that kids are, are pretty far ahead of a lot of our adults right now <laughs> in yeah. this regard. And you see that with some of the activism of high school students around the country. But um, there are, at least in the literary world, when I would go into schools and talk to librarians and students, I mean, they're interested in reading diverse authors about relevant subjects that relate to social justice. They're willing to consider the truth and not a rigid ideology that prevents them from seeing the truth. And so I enjoy being in this segment of the um, literary world uh, because there is that possibility to have a real dialogue about these issues and the, and the students are eager for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. That's so cool to see. And yeah, so I understand that you are uh, now working on a third book already. Is that right? Yes, I uh, just was working on chapter nine yesterday. Uh, this will be a biography of Glenn Burke, who was the first openly gay major league baseball player. He was an uh, African-American guy from the Bay Area, grew up in Oakland and Berkeley, went to Berkeley High, was drafted by the Dodgers and made it up to the Dodgers in 1976. He was started in center field of the 1977 World Series, but then he was run out of baseball by uh, homophobic uh, managers of the Dodgers and the Oakland A's, became a softball star in San Francisco briefly after his Major League Baseball days were over, but then he was um, hit by a car mm -hmm. and broke his leg and really lost his identity as an athlete at that point, started taking um, drugs to mask the pain from this injury, um, uh, spent a little bit of time in prison, uh, he got AIDS and he died in the mid-1990s. And so there's um, 
a tragedy to his story, but he's also an important uh, pioneer in sports with, again, in sort of an untold story. And so I'm really, I really enjoyed doing the research for this book and um, I'll be charged, I guess, with the challenge of trying to finish it while I'm out uh, promoting this book, Games of Deception. So I'll have my laptop with me everywhere I go uh, trying to write while I'm traveling. Yeah, yeah. So when you're traveling, do you come up with a um, kind of an alternate, obviously, schedule, but are you somebody who kind of like relies on a word count? Do you have a special time of day yeah. or can you work in <laughs> coffee shops or how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, um, I've had to be learn how to be pretty flexible with that, having two young kids at home. Like there's really never an ideal time <laughs> to be writing. Yeah. Um, if I had my druthers, it would be early in the morning uh, when I wrote Strong Inside before the kids were born. And as they were being born, um, I would write in the morning. Now I tend to find time, a little bit of time at night after everyone's gone to bed. And then my wife and I will kind of trade off with the kids on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Um, and so maybe like Sunday afternoons, like yesterday, um, yesterday was a good time for me to write. When I go on the road, actually I do have a little bit more time because I don't have those responsibilities with the family or my, my job at Vanderbilt. So I don't stick to any sort of uh, word counts. I don't like to put that type of pressure on myself. I really just will write as long as I feel like I have the energy and I'm writing well, you know, sure. One tip that, I received was a way to avoid writer's block and also to have momentum heading into your next writing session is to stop a little bit early. So if I'm writing a scene and I know how it's going to unfold, I might stop for the day before I've finished writing that scene because I know exactly where I'm going to pick up the next day. And um, for me, just that sense of momentum when you get started uh, for the day or for that portion of the day uh, is really important. Uh, So that's what I do. That's interesting. I wonder if we could track the uh, the origins of that writer's block advice and back to Hemingway, or if that was apocryphal. Um, I don't know. Oh, did he say something like that? <laughs> I think so, but I could yeah. be mixing it. Like, there's so many of those like apocryphal kind of uh-huh. like writer's <laughs> advice that you know certainly right. it was, certainly it was Stephen King or, or Ernest Hemingway. It couldn't be anybody <laughs> right. else. It couldn't um, be anybody else. I yeah. know, but I mean, whenever it comes to advice, I always feel like someone could claim the exact opposite, you know, and you might feel like you believe both. So oh. I, I never really try to stick to, yeah. <laughs> to too much No, it's true. It's true. Advice. And there are definitely like two camps of the writer's block um, authors and, and, you know, some swear that it, it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. And right. some absolutely have had it and, you know, have figured out ways around it. And it's, it's a really interesting conversation that really just never ends. <laughs> yeah. For me, yeah. it's, less a matter of writer's block and more of an indication that I haven't done enough research, you know, and if right. I've got the material, I really don't have writer's block. Maybe I have a pause of what's the best way to express this, you know, or to tell this story, but I, I don't really consider that writer's block. For me, it's more when you just really have no idea where to go next. And if that's the case, at least for me in narrative nonfiction, it's, it's a case of the research lacking, not a, a writing problem. Yeah. Uh, and your books are incredibly intensely researched. So are you spending, are you doing like research mm-hmm. periods and then writing periods? Yes. You don't mix the two. Uh, well, mostly I don't. Um, for Strong Inside, I spent four years on the research before I wrote a single word. So that was definitely divided in half. But even throughout the second four years, uh, you know, I would learn about more people I needed to interview um, or I would have time to go visit 
a library or an archive somewhere around the country that I hadn't been to yet. But it wasn't as intense of a research period. With Games of Deception, I had a one-year contract um, from beginning to end. So it was really accelerated. And so I spent the first six months visiting as many archives that were relevant as possible, traveling to interview a few sons and daughters of 1936 Olympians, and then only had six months to write it. Um, so there was not much research happening at that time because I really had to be focused entirely on the writing. Yeah. Um, we'll talk a little bit about, if you would, the idea of like imposter syndrome. Have you ever experienced anything uh Oh God! Like yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> and All the time. would that have anything to do with the fact that your your dad was a or is a you know a Pulitzer Prize winner? I think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you could psychoanalyze me to death on that. I think that's the reason why I didn't really start writing until relatively late. Mm-hmm. Also, as I didn't want to be following in um, my father's footsteps, you know, and then yeah. eventually just decided, what the hell, this is what I like to do. But yeah, I mean, I feel imposter syndrome in all aspects of my life, I think, not just as an author. You know, I'll have my first talk about this book at a bookstore in Nashville tomorrow. And I was telling my wife that I feel, I mean, I guess it's a version of imposter syndrome, but just the idea of people coming out to hear me talk about this book and being supportive of it. I mean, it's kind of a selfish enterprise, you know, (laughs) like to think, well, people should come to hear me talk about a book. Like, why should they? They have their own important things or their own families going on in their lives. They do cool or important or interesting things every day. And there aren't a hundred people that show up to watch them do that. (laughs) You know, Um, as an author, you get to put an acknowledgement section in the back of your book. Uh, You know, your plumber doesn't get to write on your pipes, like all the people that made it possible for them to be there that day. Like there's so many sort of self, serving selfish aspects of, of being an author um, that I think are kind of funny if you look at them um, sure. honestly. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah. But, and then, you know, but, but okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say there's, I think there's something to be said, just kind of going back to the idea of you going out and, and kind of sharing the, the story in a public setting about the community, you know, the writing community or, or just the yeah. community around like a, um, an independent bookstore or a book signing, or, you know, this is why we need to go to these, to these book, yes. book signings more often is because, you know, there are these, these stories that we need to share and are, are important for our society and our history and our culture that have important lessons. And I think, you know, going to hear you talk about something as important as this is something that people should absolutely do. And it's, it, I don't think it's selfish at all. I think it's a great, okay. great way to share that story. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I theoretically, I agree. <laughs> you know, um, I know what you're saying. And I do think that independent bookstores are incredibly important parts of, of any local community. And they rely on people showing up at events and buying their books there. Authors rely on word of mouth. And so anything you can do, I mean, I'm, I don't shy away from these opportunities. I guess I just look at them as when you ask about imposter syndrome, it's like, <laughs> do I really deserve to have this crowd showing up to support me. I'm very thankful for that. It's a little embarrassing, I guess. But um, yes, and I do think, as you mentioned your earlier question about these times that we're living in, which are very scary to me just as a person and as a a father. And I do think that my book um, is enlightening uh, in terms of how these times were dealt with in another period of history. And so um, if people can show up and learn something from this book and take that into their own lives, and yeah, that's really meaningful. And I don't take that opportunity lightly. 
Yeah, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, um, before we wrap up and uh, with your advice to your, to your fellow scribes, mm-hmm. do you think uh, there's something, you know, I, I, as I kind of read about the history of basketball, because I've always been fascinated, obviously, by the game, and I think there's something, I, I want, what do I want to hear your take on kind of like, I don't know, the, the, the original genesis of the idea of how the game was invented and kind of the democratization of the sport because it's, it really is played by, you know, all, all different types of kids from all over the world. And mm-hmm. it's such a great mm-hmm. game. And all it really requires is, as you put it, he wanted a game that had a large light ball and not much <laughs> other equipment. And that's really all you need is a ball, right? And a couple guys to toss it around with. Or, yeah, or, or girls, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, a great thing about basketball, and you could actually could say a similar thing for soccer, which yeah. probably requires even less than basketball. But you know, when it was invented at an international training school, and so uh, right from the very start, this was an international game. And as people that were trained at the YMCA training school in Springfield, Mass, traveled around the world to manage their own YMCAs, they took this game with them, and so it was pretty remarkable how quickly this game spread around the world in a pre-internet age, you know, that you had people all over the globe playing the game. Um, I think it's interesting that it's a game that I don't know that we often acknowledge this, but at the same time, we consider it a city game, you know, and the asphalt and these playgrounds Mm -hmm. and cities and immigrants picking up the game. It's a country game too. And we have these images of a hoop nailed up to a barn, you know, in Indiana or Kentucky. And so it's a game that's really belonged, like you say, to everybody from the very beginning, uh, from 1891, Naismith inventing this game just to keep students busy during the winter because they had baseball in the spring and football in the fall. And I think that because it is a city game, that it has, has lent itself to politics. And that's one area that I get into in the book is that when the idea that sports and politics should be kept separate is kind of a fantasy and they really never have been separate. Certainly the Olympics are a great example of the mixture of sports and politics, but being an urban game that's been accessible to African Americans in this country or even before that, really Jewish players in New York City were among the first great basketball players. And so it's been a part of city life and all the issues that come with that um, in the United States, at least uh, from the very beginning too. And now today you have a lot of basketball players um, who are outspoken on social issues. So from the very beginnings of this game, that, that, uh, that's been a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, very specifically you could talk about LeBron James and his comments about China or something, you know, something. So, yeah. So right. Carrying all the way through to present day. Yeah. yeah. And just what a year or two ago when he was told to shut up and dribble 
um, Perry Wallace in my first book was essentially told the same thing when he spoke out about the racism that he was encountering yeah. uh, as a pioneer in the, in the deep South. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Well, um, before we wrap with your advice, I will just mention the book one more time. Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. From the New York Times bestselling author of Strong Inside comes the remarkable true story of the birth of Olympic basketball at the 1936 Summer Games in Hitler's Germany. Kirk has called it an insightful, gripping account of basketball and bias. And Steve Scheinkin said, Marinus does a great job of blending basketball action with the horror of Hitler's Berlin to bring this fascinating, frightening, you can't make this stuff up moment in history to life. And that's really how it feels. It's like, tr you know, truth really is stranger than fiction, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and it's so much more fun for me to research. I love finding these little nuggets that are true, you know, and that you can write about and that people will be shocked by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time. So, uh, as we wrap up here, do you have any advice to your fellow scribes on just how to keep going? Well, I think my biggest piece of advice is the very beginning of that and is to just get started. For me, I never would have really fallen into this career if I had listened to the doubts that I had in my head that what I wanted to write about didn't really matter uh, or wasn't important enough. The first time I ever wrote about Perry Wallace was for a paper in college, and I was sure I was certain that my professor was going to say, you can't just write about basketball in college. You know, or you can't write about a <laughs> basketball player. That's not serious enough for college. Um, and thankfully, that's not what she said at all. She said, if that's where you're interested in, that's what you should do. And so my advice would be that whatever really matters to whoever's out there listening, if you really are passionate about a subject, do it, you know, because that passion will show through in your writing, it will keep you motivated during the hard times that you know you have something within you that, that needs to get out in the world. Uh, I feel like life is short. Like You choose what you really care about. Write about that. Other people will find that interesting too. Um, this is your story to tell. You know, um, you're not bound by any rules necessarily, you know, in terms of what expectations are about what you should write about or how you should even tell a certain story once you've decided on it. It's your book. You have the freedom to do what you want and to just dive deep into what interests you. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great note to wrap on. I'm going to point at your homepage, andrewmarinus.com. I'm going to point at your Twitter, which I recently found out was true blue 24, but it's not spelled correctly. Uh, Correct. So I will quit the proper spelling. It's T R U B L U 24. Yeah, it's a nod to the Milwaukee Brewers, the True Blue Brew Crew. Yeah. And I, I coined that handle a long time ago. And I was just experimenting with Twitter and wasn't sure if it was legit or not. And I <laughs> didn't want to use my real name. It's very postmodern. <laughs> I just kept it ever since. Yeah, no, it's good. I'll link to that one. And uh, of course, and you have a column over at um, theundefeated.com. I'll link to that where you um, often do some journalism over awesome. there. And right. uh, where else do you want listeners to find you? Yeah, well, my uh, website, andrewmarinus.com, the True Blue 24 without the E's. Uh, Instagram is amarinus. Uh, those are the best spots. Those are the nice. best spots to find me. If anybody out there has kids in middle school or high school that uh, in their schools bring in authors, I love to travel around the country visiting schools. Yeah. Um, even book clubs, uh, if people are part of a book club somewhere, you know, I think speaking to 10, 15, 20 people at a time is a great way to, to share a book. And I like to do that too. Yeah. That's really cool that you do that also. And, 
and the speaking part of it. And you are going to be uh, good luck in McPherson, Kansas. <laughs> yeah, um, that's yeah. where half of this first Olympic basketball team came from. I yeah. figured it was important to tell this story in the places that matters most. The other team, other half of the team came from LA, so hopefully I'll be headed out there as well soon. Plus, um, Washington DC, where I grew up and here in Nashville and, and building the schedule every day. Perfect. Well, thank you for taking the time and best of luck, uh, with the book. We hope to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much. This was a fun interview. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of the writer files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm, where we also humbly ask you to support the show with a secure donation to help us keep going. Just click the little yellow PayPal donate button over at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. And thank you. <laughs>